Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, we're going to be talking through a doozy of a metabolic derangement. Diabetic ketoacidosis is so complicated. So I've invited the brainiest nurse that I know to be the guest <laughs> of my show today. Christian, welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Sarah. Um, I'm not sure if I'm the brainiest one that you know, <laughs> but You're thank you for having me. What top of the list for sure. <laughs> Y'all, I love Christian so much. He's just one of my favorite people for so many reasons. He's funny and witty. He's so, so very smart. He really cares about his patients and has a high standard for patient care. He loves to teach possibly as much as I do. And he is my go-to for questions about evidence-based practice. So you're going to love my nerdy friend too. Christian, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your career as a nurse, like how you ended up as a nurse, a nurse practitioner in the critical care unit? Sure. So I originally went into nursing actually to become an oncology nurse. I got that inspiration because when I was younger, I helped take care of my grandma who actually had breast cancer. And I, that's what I originally wanted to do. And my whole entire time in nursing school, oncology, oncology, oncology. And then I did my practicum and my professors put me in critical care. So I was like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. Da, da, da. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Graduated nursing school in Miami. No jobs. <laughs> so I had uh, I ended up moving up to Gainesville to work in the burn ICU because that's like the only place I got an interview and I don't know how I got an interview there because <laughs> apparently it's like really it was really hard to get a job there at the time and I loved it I learned so much from like so many of the intensivists there and honestly I just grew a passion for critical care um Worked there for a few years, then went back to nurse practitioner school uh, from Georgetown. That's where I wear my Georgetown shirt. <laughs> Go Hoyas. Um, went to Georgetown University, got my master's uh, in acute care gerontology nurse practitioner. Um, worked over at um, one of the hospitals in town, and I, which was a great job. Got to see so many different patient populations. Um, probably the last like year and a half I was there, I was mostly in cardiac and lung transplant. And then now I went to the hospital where Sarah works in, and I've been there for about two and a half years, which is crazy to me. Oh man, time flies when you're having fun. And that's how I ended up in critical care. It's just, I just kind of stumbled into it and I fell in love with it. It's meant to be for sure. It's meant to be. So speaking of burn ICU, do you remember the day that we first met, Christian? <laughs> He's choking on his right <laughs> It was my first day ever as a charge nurse. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, so, yeah, yeah. It was my first day ever as a charge nurse. I think we actually were really busy that day. Mm -hmm. We had, because the burn IC that I worked at at the time, it was only an eight-bed unit. It was a small unit, but a mighty, a small but mighty unit, high acuity. We were short on staff, and then comes in this bubbly CI nurse, <laughs> Sarah, 
And I'm like stressing. And she's like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great day. Just tell me who, where you need me to be. And she was like so helpful. And yes, I remember that day because I was petrified the entire 12 hours. That's funny that you have that remember, like that memory of it because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I got to float to the burn ICU. <laughs> I don't know how to do those dressings. <laughs> and I get there and there's this <laughs> the charge nurse is like, oh my God, thank God you're here. I was like, wow. Must be really bad here. <laughs> and so, but then you're like, no, 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 we're good. I'll help you with your dressings. Don't worry about the dressings. This is going to be your best float ever. We're a great unit. You're going to love floating in the ICU. And you were right. The patients were sick, for sure. But I learned a lot. I actually really enjoyed the whole, like, burn dressing process. Yeah, it's a cool um, place to be. And we've been friends ever since. Look at that. Besties. <laughs> so, uh, to summarize really quick, you started as burn ICU. How long were you a burn ICU nurse? Uh, four and a half years. Okay. And then how long have you been a nurse practitioner? Uh, coming up on five years. All right, old man. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man is right. Flies by. Okay, so let's get into this case study so you can help me drop some knowledge about diabetic ketoacidosis. Let's do it. All right, so this was a very unusual case of DKA. I got called to a 40-year-old female patient who was admitted for some abdominal surgery, which honestly, I can't remember what it was. Um, something minor, like a hernia surgery or something. Other than obesity and type 2 diabetes, she really didn't have any other history. She was usually alert and oriented and normal functioning, walkie-talkie patient. But a few days after surgery, she became really nauseous and started vomiting, which is no good after abdominal surgery. Um, she complained of increased abdominal pain, and then the impetus for calling a rapid response actually came a couple days later after she had been nauseous and abdominal pain for a little bit. Um, now she became lethargic and disoriented, and the nurse is like, okay, no, I'm calling in reinforcements here. So when I arrived, the story I got from the bedside nurse was, um, Patient's been fine, and she just has slowly, slowly declined and gotten more and more disoriented. So my thought for any diabetic patient who's altered is, what's her blood sugar? Mm -hmm. So while they're getting the blood sugar, I recycled some vital signs, and I'm watching her respiratory rate. It's like 30 to 40, but she's breathing pretty fast. She's a wee bit hypotensive, like 90s over 50s, heart rate's in the 120s, but she's oxygenating okay with an SpO2 of 94%. So her blood sugar's red, and it's 180 all right, so hypoglycemia is not my source. Then the IC resident arrives, and he wants to try Narcan. Okay, yes, sleepy, lethargic patient, Narcan. But I'm thinking, she doesn't look very respiratory depressed, right? She's actually pretty tachypnic. But sure, whatever, let's try Narcan. So we give Narcan, and it does nothing. So then we got an ABG. And Christian, this is the classic example of why <laughs> ABGs can be so viable. Would you like to take this opportunity to just step up on your soapbox and preach a little bit about the value of ABGs. <laughs> Absolutely. So every time I go to a rapid response or every time I have a patient that's decompensating or not doing well, the first thing I ask for is an ABG. And everyone looks at me like I am the craziest person. Like patient's hypotensive, but he's oxygenating well. Why do you want an ABG? So an ABG is like a, is a relatively quick test that tells you a lot, right? Um, it'll tell you about metabolic derangements, uh, via your base deficit, your bicarb level, and a lot of them have lactic acid attached to it, so it'll tell you that. Um, it'll tell you about your oxygenation, so your PO2 and your saturation. But believe it or not, that's actually not the main reason why I use ABGs, unless like I have somebody who's in ARDS or something different. And a rapid response, that's actually not one of the things I'm looking primarily at. Um, and then there's ventilation, so it tells you your CO2. So the two most important things I look at in the ABG 
are your pH and your CO2 because that tells you a lot about this patient. So if your pH is normal, but your CO2 is low, then that, that tells you that your patient is compensating really for something. Yeah. It's compensating really, really hard. Um, or if your pH is high and your CO2 is low and you're alkalotic, mm. that tells you, number one, alkalosis is bad. That's the main thing. But also, number two, is it tells you that, why, like, why is someone breathing that fast? Someone shouldn't be hyperventilating that quick. Um, you're, and, yeah, it just tells you so much. Like, your CO2 is probably the most indicator of decompensation within the next hour or two. So that's actually why I use an ABG. I think it is really good for in rapid responses. It's a quick test. It's done in a couple of minutes, uh, depending on the facility that you're at. If they do like iStats or EPUCs or whatever the technology is, if they're able to do it at bedside, it's good for that in-between patient. Like there's the slam dunk. So this person's fine and this person definitely needs a unit. But that in-between patient where you're just like... Uh, like, do I really send him to the unit? I don't know. He could be PCU. If I get an ABG that's borderline or not so great, even though the patient is talking to me, I know that there's something that's wrong now. Something's brewing. Something's brewing. Let's be proactive. Yeah, absolutely. Amen, brother. So while an ABG is not needed to diagnose DKA, in this patient, it definitely points us in the right direction. So here's the ABG. Prepare yourself. pH, 6.9. PO2... 65, and again, the SAT was 94. CO2, 20, bicarb, eight. Just eight, not like 28 or 18, <laughs> just plain eight. Okay, so Christian, what would be your first thought if you got this ABG back on an altered Kipnik patient? So is this is this a bad ABG? I was just <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> pretty bad. Pretty bad. This is this, this is, is like a, ICU bad. Yeah, this is a so first thing. If I'm looking at this ABG, I am probably my heart rate and my blood pressure are raising a little bit. So <laughs> the first thing I'm looking at is the pH, and the reason I'm looking at the pH is because one thing: if your pH is normal, then you're you could kind of move on to looking at like other things because that means that you're still compensating, right? So like if you have a pH of 7.4 plus everything is wrong, you're not, you have some time. Maybe not a lot, but you have some time. At least your body's doing what it's supposed to do. Right. It's, it's fixing the, un, like at least compensating for the underlying issue. Now this ABG, this patient is in trouble. This patient at any moment now can, or can go into cardiac arrest. So the first thing that I'm looking at is number one, what's causing the 6.9. And I think... The bicarb, um, the bicarb of eight, right, is the go-to. Like, okay, you have a bicarb of eight, so it's a metabolic acidosis. So you need to fix that as soon as possible. But it's not as simple as, as just like giving, you know, some sort of buffer, right? You need to figure out exactly what's going on. Uh, so fluid resuscitation is usually a good first go-to for this. Uh, but that's my thing is correct the metabolic derangement. Then the second thing, and I think this is where... Um, I probably, a lot of people just kind of don't understand where I'm coming from when I want to do things like hyperventilate a patient. So there's this thing called the winner's formula. So if you get the bicarb and you plug this into this winter's formula, it essentially tells you what your PCO2 should be, right? So if you get this bicarb and you plug it into the winner's formula, it'll give you a range. Um, and this patient's range is actually about 16 to 24 so he's compensate he doesn't have a com 
uh, superimposed respiratory acidosis. Um, so that's a good thing, but that's the other thing I look for because now if you have a metabolic acidosis and let's say his PCO2 was 30 or 40, oh, that's normal. No, it's not normal for this person, right? So now I'm now my blood pressure is raising even higher because he's tiring out. So that's kind of how I, how I see this ABG and I'm like, all right, so I have someone who is in extremis and I need to fix this now, like within the next hour if I possibly right. can. So even though the patient's oxygen saturation is 94%, you're like, we're going to the unit, A hundred percent. Okay, yeah. that's exactly what we did. Okay, yeah. so we ended up drawing a whole panel of labs, including a chemistry with an anion gap, and we took her straight to the ICU for closer monitoring and he did high flow oxygen therapy. So I'll be completely honest with you, I never smelled ketones, <laughs> nor was that even on my radar because her blood glucose was euglycemic, like it was totally normal. So it turns out her anion gap was like 20 something and she definitely had a ketosis going on. She took SGL2 inhibitors for her type 2 diabetes and this can potentiate euglycemic ketoacidosis then like when another stressor is also present. So she had the abdominal surgery and then she's vomiting and she's stressed and she's dehydrated. All that combination with SGL2, SGL2 inhibitors <laughs> often leads to euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. So in summary, I got called to patient with an ultramental status with a pretty altered ABG as well. Turns out she was in DKA, but her blood sugar was completely normal. All right, Christian, <laughs> I have so many questions for you and I know you're just chomping on the bits to break them all down. So let's start with the basics. Bring it. <laughs> what is DKA and why is it so concerning? Okay. So, um, so let's start with the basics, right? So your body makes a combination of insulin and glucagon. And the reason you make a combination of insulin and glucagon is to maintain uh, euglycemic state and to get the glucose that's in your body, put it into the cells and have your, and throw that into your mitochondria and through a chemical reaction that makes ATP, which is the energy in the cell. Okay, so we all know that that's, it's probably been a while for some people, like I've had to like, uh, oh yeah, ATP, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. So whenever there is an imbalance of glucose's availability or ability to get into the cell, then what happens is your body's like, oh, okay, my cells are hungry, we don't have glucose, so we need some backup energy. So the first two things, so in a normal healthy person that's not critically ill, it usually goes to, they break down fat. In a critically ill patient, there's some other changes in your metabolism that it'll throw protein in there. Um, but either way, you end up going into what's called ketosis. So when you throw, um, when you break apart fat, right? So you break down your fat, um, fat cells and fat tissues, essentially a bunch of these things called fatty acid chains, which is like these long chains of lipid-based acids um, that all kind of are come together. So when you break apart fat cells, all those chains are just kind of like floating around and they get put into the Krebs cycle. Right, which is that chemical reaction to make ATP. And you go and you make ATP, but you also make what's called ketone bodies. Now, ketone bodies are, um, they're a class of, um, they're a class of uh, chemical byproducts that are essentially ketone-based. And the two main ones that you actually make are beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Uh, so the reason you may, so the reason you have like in, um, DKA, that fruity breath, and like it kind of smells like nail polish remover a little bit, is because of the acetoacetate. Um, but you also make a very important one called beta hydroxybutyrate. Um, so that's 
So, and the reason that's bad is because it'll send your body into a metabolic acidosis. Um, so pause. I'm going to summarize it for the people that are like, oh my please. gosh, you're speaking another language. <laughs> All go. right. So lots of sugar, cells can't use it right, ketones are released, and they're acidic. And so now yes. you have an acidotic state because of those darn ketones. Yes. Okay, keep going. Perfect. So, um, so now you have an acidotic state, right? So what is that? Why, why is that such a bad thing? Well, number one, if you're acidotic, um, when you have a low pH, you're, all the pro, a lot of the proteins in your body are actually, they change shape and they don't work well. So that's why like when someone's on pressors and they're hemodynamically unstable or they're hypotensive and they're acidotic, so that's the reason why right. is because nothing's your pH, gonna nothing's going to work. Um, so that's number one. Number two, you actually, how do you compensate for acid? So if you have a lot of um, acid in your blood, right? Like for whatever reason, from either you're getting rid of bicarb or you have too many ketones, your body needs to like raise that pH quickly. So what happens? You start breathing deeper and you start breathing quicker. Um, and that's essentially to increase what's called your minute ventilation, which is how many liters per minute you breathe. Which we saw in this patient. She was yeah. breathing like 40 times a minute. Right. So that's probably the first key. that. So if someone's breathing rapidly like that, Narcan is, is definitely a good thought when someone is obtundant and it's no harm, no foul in most cases. Um, but what should have been the first go ahead is like, okay, why is this patient breathing 30 to 40 times a minute? That's not normal. Um, but your body does a really good job of doing it and making sure that you're getting adequate tidal volumes and ventilating appropriately. So all that being said, so your body gets acidotic, um, develops these ketones, gets acidotic. Now, because of the acidosis, you're not making ATP efficiently. So now you're becoming kind of like your energy reserves are decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. Also, you're not, the whole reason this is happening is because you're not able to bring in glucose. So that means into the cell. That doesn't mean that you don't have glucose, but that, that the glucose just isn't getting into the cell. So all those extra glucose molecules are hanging around the blood. What does that do? The reason that's bad is because it causes what's called an osmotic diuresis. That's fancy for saying, hey, the blood is like so thick and concentrated that water moves from the cells into the blood vessel and then as it does that, at first, the patient's going to be hypertensive. That's why it kind of takes a little bit to really know it, uh, know that something's going on because at first their blood pressure will be normal to a little high. And then you start peeing out all this water and glucose and water and glucose. So now you're... So the, the cells are like raisins all dry oh, and Oh, man. But then the yeah. body's not helping because you're just peeing everything out. You're just out. peeing everything out. Okay. You're just peeing everything out. So now, you're, now your cells are like little raisin cells. Um, your blood volume is lower and you are now so behind on fluid. Whatever fluid you're going to give is going to go into the cells before it even restores the vasculature. So you're at this point, like this patient right here is probably uh, someone like this is going to need liters and liters of fluid. Okay. So how does someone actually die from DKA? Like they're like, oh yeah, they wanted to die about a coma and they died. Yeah. So no. how did they actually die? Like what happened? So the most common, so the reason why people die nowadays from ketoacidosis is electrolyte <coughs> imbalances. So one thing that insulin is really good at, insulin is good at obviously making sure that the cells get glucose, but it also co-transports potassium into the cells. So whenever you don't have that, you have a complete derangement of 
if you're not able to get potassium from the blood into the cells because insulin isn't working and that's one of insulin's job, your cells don't have uh, potassium. Then, remember what we just talked about, you're peeing and you're peeing and you're peeing. Guess what else you're peeing out? It's potassium. So as you start resuscitating patients and giving them insulin and all that, they get pro- they could get profoundly hypokalemic. And as we all know, hypokalemia can lead to arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. Okay. So. so again, patient's vital signs weren't, oh my God, except for the, the respiratory rate. Right. But she was really, really, really sick. Okay. So as a nurse practitioner, what would you need to diagnose a patient with DKA? So... If someone, so the first things first, before you have any labs or anything, you obviously have to look at the patient. And that's why the, that's why the bedside nurses are so key is because you, uh, you guys, and I say you guys, I kind of consider myself a bedside nurse. I still bathe patients sometimes. Uh, what would you say in the club, Christian? There you go. You Thank you. Club. Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, but that's the reason why bedside nurses are so important because we take care of the patients like minute to minute, hour to hour. And we see like when something is off, when something changes, that triggers me. So then what's different about the patient? So whenever I hear anorexia, uh, vomiting, nausea, overall not feeling well, and man, his breathing's a little different or Mm -hmm. her breathing is a little different. That that triggers me to be like, okay, all right. So let me look at their history and see what's going on. Oh, they're diabetic. All right. So that's so. Those are the basic presentations: anorexia, nausea, vomiting, um, and rapid breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then and abdominal pain. I've seen lots of and abdominal pain. pain. Yeah. And I think with her, they just assumed, oh, you it was from the surgery. surgery. Of course, Absolutely. Abdominal pain, but no, she had DKA for Yeah. Um, then so the, I go and I look at that patient. Looks like not really that great of a of a of a patient in terms of feeling well um so then you know obviously i get my favorite test in the world and now i know that the patient has a metabolic acidosis so that doesn't diagnose it like what you said right it just tells me what is going on with the patient right now um so in order to diagnose it number one these patients have an anion gap metabolic acidosis um then once, so once I know that a patient has an anion gap metabolic acidosis, then you think of the common causes for it. And one of the more common causes is diabetic ketoacidosis. So then you got to send off some other labs, um, urine and serum ketones. Um, beta hydroxybutyrate is diagnostic. Oh yeah, it's, it's diagnostic 100%. If you have beta hydroxybutyrate, you're definitely in DKA. Um, glucose, so in terms of if you look at the literature, people will say glucose over 250, but more and more common now is this whole thing of uh, euglycemic uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, and the reason why people, these uh, more and more people are getting euglycemic uh, diabetic ketoacidosis is because they take these SL, oh my gosh, SLG, SGL2 inhibitors, <laughs> that thing, that, that thing. I know what it does, but man, can I not say it? Um, so how those medications work is essentially, so it kind of doesn't seem related to what I'm about to say, but I promise it does. Your kidney is the most, arguably probably the most inefficient organ in the body. <laughs> the reason I say I'm that. dissing the kidneys, Christian. Dang. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm dissing the kidneys. Cause so many problems. So inefficient. Um, I'm a nephrologist. No, so shh, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> 
So basically the reason I say that is because you, whenever you have blood going through your kidney to make urine, you let go of a bunch of electrolytes in the urine and then you get reabsorbed and then it gets excreted again. And it's like a lot of like, get rid of, no, I want it. Get rid of, no, I want it. Get rid of, mm, maybe. So one of those things is glucose, right? So you get rid of glucose right away, but then you actually have this, um, this receptor um, that will reabsorb the glucose in the distal convoluted tubule and part of the nephron of the body. And that's how it kind of maintains euglycemia. And that's like, you know, if you're hypoglycemic, the kidneys will reabsorb it and so on and so forth. So the idea is if you block that receptor from reabsorbing glucose. The SGL2 yes, receptor? Okay, correct. got it. If you block that SGLT2. SGLT2. <laughs> um, if you block SGLT2 from reabsorbing glucose, uh, you will not have as high glucose. Okay. So it's pretty good. It's a pretty good drug. Um, the problem is this. This mm-hmm. is the one downfall is because you'll be euglycemic because you don't have enough glucose because you're taking your SGL2 and uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. You're getting rid of glucose and you know it's a combination of you're diabetic, you need insulin, as well as you just don't have glucose. Mm-hmm. So that's how you sense the ketosis. So uh, that's my roundabout way of saying, yes, patients are hyperglycemic in DKA, but just because a patient is euglycemic nowadays does not mean that they're not in diabetic ketoacidosis. Good. Thank you. So You said you wanted me to be nerdy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> so now let's talk through the treatment for DKA. Yeah. Um, what would you be ordering for this patient? How would you approach her treatment? Because her blood glucose was fine. Mm-hmm. So obviously, so this is, can I speak a little bit more to the SGL2 and the type of yes. ketoacidosis? I'm sure people totally follow me 100% because it's really easy to understand. <laughs> so. Okay. What you guys can't see is all of his hand movements and like directions of what the nephrons are doing and like pulling and pulling. You can't see the audience. Just, um, we need to have visual for this <laughs> one. really understand. All right, continue. Yes. Oh, man. Take it away. SGLT2 inhibitor. <laughs> Summary. Speaking with my hands is uh, the new Cuban sign language. I'm Cuban. I can say that. Sorry. Um, so we talked earlier about diabetic ketoacidosis in terms of your insulin not working. And that also is probably happening in this patient. Um, but there's also such thing as starvation ketoacidosis. Uh, so when you do not have glucose to put in to the cells... Um, so let's say your insulin is working fine and it's just like, hey, come on, let's go. Hey, glucose, come on, I want to put you in the cell. And then the glucose is just like, they're not, they didn't understand the assignment. They're not, they're not around. <laughs> and uh, because you just don't have any, you're starved. Um, you don't have, you haven't had glucose in a couple days or you have, you take SGLT2 inhibitors and you're peeing out all this glucose. Um, that also can happen too. So um in this patient, it was probably a combination of both insulin wasn't effective and she was peeing out any of the glucose that she was taking because she got started on this um, medication. That being said, um, the, the treatment for, there's a reason I'm saying that. So now in terms of the treatment for diabetic ketoacidosis. So first things uh, first, you need to, you need to give volume. 
So volume, not like a ton of insulin because it's diabetic. <laughs> Ketoacidosis. Volume. <laughs> okay, volume is most important. So, and, and the reason I say that is think about when you saw this patient, when the rapid was called, when all that, right? So what was the patient's blood pressure? It was 90 over 50s, right? Yeah. And the heart rate was in the 120s. one. So there's something called the shock index where if you get your heart rate and divide it by your systolic blood pressure, if it's greater than I think like 0.8, um, then you're, the risk of that patient decompensating very soon is very high. Uh, so this patient's shock index was definitely over one. Um, so this patient was, you can argue is in shock already and is in, in extremis. And by the time like these patients start presenting and you're made aware of it, they're already behind on fluid. So you need to give them definitely volume repletion. Also, uh, you know, think ABCs, right? Or, you know, yeah, think ABCs in terms of you need to restore, uh, circulation as much as possible. And in terms of what volume to use, oh, this is this is a. All right, this is just one podcast, Christian. You can't do a whole podcast <laughs> on the benefits no, of LR no, no, over no. saline. <laughs> so, so the most tried and true in terms of what the data shows um, and what guidelines and all that say is to use normal saline. That being said, there's more and more evidence out there using um, what's called balanced crystalloids like LR or plasmalite. Um, there's data showing that they reduce length of stay and uh, uh, reduce the time to resolution, meaning they get more balanced out and all that quicker mm -hmm. with balanced crystalloids. So my preference is usually to use LR or plasmalite. Also, LR and plasmalite have potassium in it, whereas normal saline doesn't. It's negligible, um, but it's better than nothing. So you give lots of volume. It, don't be surprised if you see saline. Um, but if you see me in the hall and I'm responding to the rapid and the patient's in DK, just know it's going to be LR. It's going to be LR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Oh man. Um, okay. So fluid replacement is your first, yes. first intervention. What else? Uh, then, uh, so then you start them on an insulin drip if they're hyperglycemic. So that, that's, this is interesting, right? So this patient is. Um, not profoundly hyperglycemic. So I don't know if I would necessarily start this patient on, I would definitely start this patient on like whatever protocol the your institution has. Um, but by and large, most protocols will say that at this point, whenever your glucose gets below 250 or 200, something along those lines, to start a maintenance infusion with glucose in it. And that is probably in this specific patient with euglycemic ketoacidosis, Patient probably needs a little bit of glucose, um, but let's say the patient had a glucose of like 600 or 400 or whatever, then you would start them on an insulin infusion, um, and that the main purpose is to rev is to essentially stop ketose, uh, ketone body uh, production. You want to stop that as much as possible while you're correcting everything else, and then uh, probably the most important um, is electrolyte replacement. So. Um, potassium is kind of one of those things that's difficult. So if, let's say if I get to, if I'm starting to fluid resuscitate you and you're acidotic and your potassium is four, I'm going to give you potassium. Right. And the reason I'm going to give you potassium is because, uh, remember in the beginning of the podcast, uh, I, when I said, or earlier in the podcast, when I said, uh, insulin does a really good job of putting potassium from the blood into the cell because that's where potassium likes to live is in the cell. 
So whenever you don't have insulin or whenever you have a severe acidosis, your, um, your potassium is leaking from the cell into the blood vessel. So what happens? I'm so going like falsely elevated. It's falsely elevated or falsely normal. So okay. if you have right, so like if you have a normal potassium and your pH is six point nine, you're you're hypokalemic. Right. You're hypokalemic. And what am I gonna give you? I'm gonna give you a bunch of fluid, potentially bicarb. It's gonna And insulin. And insulin, right? Um, so your potassium is gonna drop. So you need to um, that's one thing that you really need to stay on top of, and that's why with these patients, usually I order like <laughs> Q Q4 hour uh, BMP, that's, or potassium. The reason I do Q4 hour, because that's a concession on my end, to be honest. If it was up to me, I would have Q2 hour uh, BMPs. And I would definitely, this is somebody I would potentially put in a central line just for potassium repletion. Uh, repletion. Um, so electrolytes. Um, also, in terms of electrolytes, there's two more main ones that I kind of want to like touch base on. So everyone freaks out over sodium. The reason everybody freaks out over sodium is because, oh my gosh, the sodium was 120, now it's 135, and it's only been a few hours, right? And, you know, I think the concern that the reason people bring that up to me is because, well, you corrected the sodium too quick, you're going to shrink their brain. Um, there's this concept called pseudohyponatremia. Um, so pseudohyponatremia is when your sodium is actually normal, but because of other factors, your blood is diluted. So it looks like your sodium is lower than what it is. So one of those things is when you have hyperglycemia and your glucoses are like 400, 500. There's an actual formula that you could, if you put in your glucose value, it'll show you, and your actual sodium, your sodium on the lab, it'll show you what your true sodium is. So um, people tend to freak out about sodium. Most of the time the sodium is low because they have pseudohyponatremia. Also, when you're really dehydrated, it's, it causes hyponatremia because your body holds on to ADH and tries to hold on to just pure water. So it's a combination. They're, they are hyponatremic, but it's probably not as drastic of a jump as people say. And the other main one is FOSS. Um, nobody talks about FOSS. Nobody talks about FOSS. And it's kind <laughs> of like I feel... I feel like I feel like I'm FOSS. Is, for the FOSS. Yeah, right, man. Go for it, so the reason why FOSS is so important is because uh, FOSS is part of one really, really, really important molecule, and that is ATP, right? So <laughs> and the reason so ATP actually stands for adenine triphosphate. So you need FOSS to make ATP, and also ATP is like younger brother ADP, which is adenine diphosphate, which. Getting too nerdy here. Well, it's been too many years. <laughs> Point is, uh, FOSS mate is a, an important part of ATP and this other thing, and they're all important um, cellular messengers. So you're going to have, if you're hypophosphatemic, or if your FOSS is low, meaning, meaning if your FOSS is low, you're going to have a lot of problems. Uh, so you really need to make sure that you stay on top of the FOSS level. And there's actually a lot of evidence that like patients who, go in, who are in respiratory failure um, if you push up their FOSS levels to like normal or high, there's some evidence showing that it may make a difference in terms of getting ventilator wean and stuff like that. So remember, these guys are breathing 30, 40 times a minute and they're just replete, they're just using up ATP and then now their FOSS is super low. So potassium and FOSS are the ones you have to replace. And then sodium is probably the one that everyone, a lot of people freak out over that you probably don't even freak out over as much. Okay. And then... 
pH of 6.9. Uh -huh. When do you choose to give bicarb? Bum, and bum, when bum. do you wait and see what happens? <laughs> so, bicarb. Um, so, guidelines will tell you to not use bicarb unless your pH is less than 7.1 or unless you're hemodynamically unstable with an acidotic state. Um, the... So when can so think about why you're giving bicarb. You're giving bicarb so that way you could buffer out um, all the free hydrogen ions because that's what makes you acidic, right? Is like all these free hydrogen ions. So you push bicarb. Bicarb goes binds to it and you know buffers it out that way. The concern for giving bicarb unnecessarily is that the bicarb will bind to the hydrogen ion and make carbonic acid that breaks up into water and carbon dioxide. So the concern is that the more bicarb you give, the more CO2 will be elevated in your body. And you could actually send the patient into a respiratory acidosis or on it, top of the metabolic on top of the metabolic acidosis or that it's going to make the patient breathe harder and faster. Um so there's also like does it really make a difference unless your pH is less than 7.1? Probably not. Um, so in terms of guideline, in terms of standard, less than 7.1 is your cutoff. The reasons that, other reasons that sometimes you'll see bicarb be, uh, be given is, if I notice that the patient is tiring out, I'm gonna give them a little bit of bicarb. And the reason I'm gonna give them a little bit of bicarb is because as they're breathing 30, 40 times a minute, they're doing it because you have so much of a metabolic acidosis. So if I give them a little bit of bicarb, it's gonna reduce the metabolic acidosis. And yeah, it'll increase your CO2 theoretically, but it doesn't matter. They're breathing, Blow it off. Yeah. you're blowing it off anyways. Um, you know, the issue is when the patient is like really tiring out and like now their, you know, their carbon dioxide is like normal high, then that's when I really start to get a little careful. But again, uh, less than 7.1, your receptors aren't working, you're getting hypotensive, some bicarb is probably is probably needed. I think we did give her like two amps. Yeah, and that's that's like 6.9 is definitely somebody that I would I would give two amps. And to be fair, so the main concerns with giving bicarb is that, right, is the rising in the CO2. Um, the, other, the other risk is that you're also going to have a lot of quick potassium shifts. Because as you give bicarb, you're going to rapidly correct, uh, at least increase the pH. And that's going to cause your potassium to shove back into the cells. So if you haven't given any potassium and your potassium is like three and you're giving a ton of bicarb, you just got to be really careful and make sure that you're at least replacing potassium. And thirdly, a lot of people are concerned about the sodium load. So um, bicarb, how it's given is sodium bicarb, 150 mil, uh, it's 50 milliequivalents and one um, amp. Mm -hmm. So you're essentially sodium loading um, the patient, but I would argue that at 6.9, this patient's pretty close to death. Um, so, you know, that's, that's my spiel on bicarb. So, thank you. <laughs> I knew you'd have something to say about bicarb. Run around about it. All right, so just to summarize DK for a minute. Go. Um, I think when I started as a new nurse, I was like, oh my gosh, the blood sugar is so high. We have to get the blood sugar down. They're so sweet. Get the blood sugar down. But as I kind of learn more about DKA, I understand it's not a blood sugar issue. Like, yeah. Yes, it is. 
but that's not what we're trying to fix. Correct. We're trying to correct the acidosis. Yeah. And in the process, we will fix the blood sugar. But like uh, this patient was severely acidotic yeah. and her blood sugar was fine. Yeah. Yeah. So IV fluids is the big thing because with this acidotic state and this high glucose, whatever, their cells are so dry. So fluids, fluids, fluids. But when you get fluids, 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 you'll drop the potassium. Uh-huh. And then you start an insulin drip. And now you're dropping the potassium even more. <laughs> yeah. So we are, we are managing lots of things with these patients. It's not just like, oh, yep, they're so sweet. Go to the ICU. Let's get the blood sugar down. Like, yeah. okay, they're acidotic. we got to fix that. But we can't just fix it with bicarb. Their body has to kind of fix it itself. Bicarb is just like a temporary fix. Yeah. Um, get the electrolytes fixed. Get the insulin drip going to kind of stop that ketone body production. Um, these patients, we have to watch them like a hawk. Yes. Because they can turn the corner and code on you yes. so quickly. Yes. So just... For the sake of reiterating a very important point, even when the glucose is fine or improving, we don't just turn off the insulin drip. No, no, at no, no. At that no. point, like at our hospital, the protocol is once it gets less than 250, you start then glucose. we start dextrose yeah. to go along with the insulin drip. Yeah. And I've had patients be like, what? You're giving me an insulin drip and a sugar drip it's, at the same time? Isn't right. that counterproductive? But it's not. We, we want to keep giving the insulin to kind of like halt that ketone body production Correct. until yep. the anion gap closes. And uh-huh. to buy us time for that thing to close, we're going to give you some sugar. Yes. Sugar and insulin yes. simultaneously. 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, can you talk first about like what is the anion gap? Yeah. And then also <laughs> once the anion gap closes and the patient's no longer acidotic um, and like they're clinically better, they're looking good, how do you safely transition the patient off the insulin drip? Yeah, okay, so the so anion, anion gap first. Anion gap first. And then switching off the insulin drip. Go. Go. All right, so the anion gap is, so honestly, as a bedside nurse, it was one of those things like, anion gap, like, okay. <laughs> sure. Like, because I think people don't talk about it enough. And I think, um, you know, I think it's one of those things that as bedside nurses, we really probably should know a little bit more about. Um, and I, I really wish as a bedside nurse, I knew more about it. And people yeah. Well, it wasn't on my NCLEX. I know it, wasn't, it wasn't on the NCLEX. And I actually, I remember, <laughs> I remember a professor at some point in my undergraduate career saying, you don't need to know about oh that. Oh my I'm gosh. Like, oh, I hate oh. when people tell me <laughs> So I'm frustrating. Like, oh, really? Now I really <laughs> want to say, oh, don't worry about that. You don't, you don't need to know it. I'm like, wait. <sighs> Uh, oh no, now I have to know it. I will yeah. be researching it in my own time. <laughs> yeah. Two second sidebar. We are nurses. We are intelligent people. That's right. And we need to know these things. That's right. Okay, so, continue. Anion, anion gap. gap. So, anion gap essentially will tell you, it's essentially, so the background. Your body, no matter what, will have an even amount of positive ions or cations or neg- and negative ions or anions, and that's to maintain a concept of electro uh, electroequilibrium. Um, no matter what, that's going to happen, right? Um, so the anion gap is a good is how you measure the difference between the measurable positive ions or cations subtracted by the measurable anions. The idea being that you can measure it's there's a lot more measurable cations than there are measurable anions. So when I say cations, the main one I'm thinking of is sodium and potassium. Those are the main measurable ones, right? You draw a BMP and those are the positively charged ions that you can measure really easily. And then the negatively charged anions are uh, chloride and bicarb, which on the chemistry, on the BMP, this is also a fun fact, on the BMP, 
the CO2 is not carbon dioxide. The CO2 is actually bicarb on your BMP. So that's how they are able to get bicarb. It's not from the ABG. The, AB, the bicarb on the ABG is calculated. Anyways. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, so those are your two main things. So if you so normally there is a gap, um, depending on plus or minus. Depend, the gap is like 10 to 15, 12 to 17, something along those lines, um, depending on if you count potassium or not in there. So what you want to – so if your gap is higher than normal, meaning instead of like 10, it's like 20, then that means that there's more unmeasurable negatively charged ions floating around in the body causing you to be acidosis. Those unmeasurable ones are theoretically ketones, acetones, um, beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, some other toxins that you have to have like special tox screens for and so on and so forth. So the idea is that if you have ketones going around the body, even though yes, you could draw serum ketone, that's, it, that's not calculated in the anion gap. So if your anion gap is high, plus you have like urinary ketones and you're hyperglycemic, that all kind of paints a picture of, okay, there's ketones floating around somewhere causing this acidosis and that's what's driving it. So that's that's why, that's essentially the anion gap. Now, that's when you have a high anion gap. Now, when you have a low anion, or a normal anion gap, um, that's essentially means that you have an acidosis, but that means that there's one of the higher, uh, that means that you have a higher or at least a normal anion that's calculated in these equations. The most common one being chloride. Chloride is pretty, uh, when the more chloride that you have, the more bicarb you're gonna get rid of. So if you were explaining to a family member, like from the sticks, yeah, with the eighth grade education, sure, what the anion gap was, yeah, how would you say, what, what does it tell you about your patient? So essentially how I would phrase it is the, this test, the anion gap, is essentially measuring the difference between the between the two different types of um, the two different types of uh, molecules in the body that you know really kind of rule out whether that show whether your ketones are getting better or worse. I like it. Okay. That's that's how I would say it. Let's Does that make sense? I kind of felt like I was talking in circles. There for a second. <laughs> it's definitely a lot. I think what I tell people is we don't know that the acidosis is fully corrected until we see the anion gap yeah. come down. Okay. So like even though it's not like oh Maybe... there it's not like a measurement specifically of acid, but it kind it kind of is. It tells you that the, that it's, it's moving in the right direction. Or better yet, or a better way to say it is maybe like oh that's to me that's essentially measuring how well we're stopping the process. Okay, there you go. That's probably better. All right, so we had talked about how we're waiting for the anion gap to close. Yes. Which is why we're continuing insulin drip on someone who's euglycemic. Yeah. Right. All right, so it's closed. It's, it's closed. at 11. Yay! Huh. Now what do you do? Nailed it. So you're closed. You saved this patient's life. Yes. This patient was on the brink of death, and you yeah. just probably... Her belly pain's gone away. Oh, my gosh. She's not... To Kipnik anymore. Fix her. She's saying, Thank you for saving my life. <laughs> oh man. Tugs on my heartstrings. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so basically what you do whenever you're transitioning somebody from an insulin drip to sub Q insulin, um, you want to avoid so number one, you are gonna need some sort of basal insulin for this patient. 
Okay, so that's the problem with that is that if you overshoot it or if you overcorrect it and you go to one to one correction, you run the risk of hypoglycemia. And what's worse, hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia? Hypoglycemia <laughs> because your brain lays glucose and you'll end up in a coma. Right. Um, so let's not do that. So basically, what you do is you get your glucose, or you look back in your chart and you say, hey, this patient needed 100 units of insulin over the past 24 hours. So the pharmacist or I, um, go and calculate and get 70% of that, right? And the reason you do 70% is because it, you know, you're undershooting it a little bit. And so let's say I'm getting, so this patient is going to get 70 units of insulin. Half of that is going to be through Lantus. So I know I'm going to give them 35 units of Lantus through, uh, no matter what. So what about the other 35? You're going to kind of mix that between sliding scale and scheduled insulin. Okay. And then kind of titrate up that way. Um, again, the key is to prevent have to prevent hypoglycemia. You really don't don't want that. And most of these patients also, depending on how poorly controlled they are, um, or how well controlled they are, they could probably tolerate higher glucoses for a little bit while you're trying to settle them out. So you'd rather than be on the high end. Yeah, side. I'd rather than be on the high end side. And this is the part where people probably like the nurse. A lot of the nurses are just like really. <laughs> You, they actually should eat on an insulin drip uh, once the gap is closed. You should feed them as soon as possible. And the reason you should feed them as soon as possible is because, number one, it'll get them off of the IV dextrose. Um, you want to try to, as much as possible, in DKA, obviously, fluids. But if we get them, if we get any patient off of IV fluids as soon as possible, that's the best thing for, for them. Um, also, it'll kind of like show their rhythm and show what their true insulin requirements are. Gotcha. Perfect. So there's one more thing that I wanted to bring up just because I love smashing old dogma. So when I was a new nurse, if a patient came in altered with a low GCS and breathing 40 times a minute, they're going to get intubated. Like, like no questions asked. Like we, were, we would always worry and quote, they're going to tire out. That was always the phrase. And that is a concern. But like preventively, we're like, tube them, tube them, tube them. Um, another phrase we would say is GCS less than eight, intubate, which... <laughs> has some merit, but now we know that intubation actually should be avoided if possible. Not that we're not that we're like never gonna do it. Right. But like why would we not intubate someone with a GCS less than eight who's breathing 40 times a minute? What if they tire out, Christian? So that's a valid point, right? So what if they tire out is a very, very valid point, um, especially in someone with like low reserve. I'm thinking of like the six-year-olds or even like the younger people that are just brittle, they're malnourished, those type of diabetics. That's definitely, absolutely valid concern. Um, the problem with intubating is that it's not, so whenever you're intubating someone, you're going to take away their rest. Whenever you do the process of intubation, meaning you induce them give them drugs, and then put the tube in their throat, you're going to depress their respiratory drive, um, depending on what you give them, right? So most people, like whenever you set up for intubation, set up for intubation, um, will say, give me a Tominate and Rock, because they paralyze right. the patient. Or now more now more and more people, they don't paralyze. So I've actually been paralyzing people less and less. Um, but you're still going to give them some sort of drug that depresses their respiratory drive. So, so to get the tube in. To get the tube you in. You got to sedate them. You got to sedate them. And sometimes even paralyze them. And sometimes even paralyze them. But so, the respiratory rate was just 40, just a second ago. Correct. Okay. So the resp respiratory rate was 40. Now it's Zero. 20. No. <laughs> so let's say, okay, so let's say. Okay, 20 because we're bagging them. So right, let's right. say we're bagging them, right? Let's say we're bagging them. 
and you go from 40 to 20. Um, you just have to, you just cut in half that patient's ability to compensate. So in a patient with a normal pH, you have room, right? You have some room to get away with that. What do you think is going to happen with a patient with a pH of 6.9 or 7.1 or even 7.2? And all that CO2 that they were blowing Ooh, off, well, it's just right. That's now. why. Right. That's why. So like you're, remember, going back, you're compensating because you're having two small respirations. You're getting rid of CO2 and you're doing that by breathing 40 times a minute. So now if you're breathing 20 times a minute and you're not breathing as deeply because I'm the one that's ventilating you, right? Not your own body doing it. But you guys can't see is him. Oh my God. Him <laughs> pretending to bag a patient. He's got like a good seal and he's squeezing gotta, the bag and everything. I'm doing it. It's great. <laughs> but it's not what your body's doing. So, you know, the CO2 is climbing, climbing, climbing. So instead of a CO2 of 20, now your CO2 is 40. And going back to what I said earlier, oh, CO2 of 40, normal. No, not for this patient. Not for this patient. So a lot of times you're at risk for what's called peri-intubation arrest, meaning they didn't like it, so their heart stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's why you try you with these patients you hold off on intubation as much as humanly possible. Sometimes you can't get away from it, like they go into respiratory arrest or something, um, and you have to. Then it is what it is. Uh, but if you could, if this person spontaneously breathing, and let's say their GCS is seven and they have a gag, I'm holding off on intubating them and I'm gonna try to optimize them as much as I can. If I really had to, what I'm going to do, if their pH is even 7.15 and I'm gonna have to intubate them, I'm gonna give them like three amps of bicarb. And then intubate. And then intubate. Like that you have at least some room. And then some people will say, well, your CO2 is gonna go up. It doesn't matter. I'm bagging them first just to blow off the CO2 a little bit and then I'm putting the tube right in right away. So for this patient, we chose heated high flow nasal cannula. Okay. We chose that over bypass. Right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because she was nauseous mm-hmm. and had been vomiting. Mm-hmm. How is heated high flow nasal cannula helpful for this patient? So, how frank can I be? <laughs> you can be frank. In no a clean <laughs> That is absolutely heated high flow in this patient is absolutely useless. Okay. Okay. It's it, a, from what I observed, it did take some of her worker breathing off. Sure. She did She did slow a bit. I'm sure that she did. But we also gave bicarb. You also, also gave bicarb. <laughs> you also probably gave her fluids. You probably yeah. did a lot of stuff. Heated high-flow nasal cannula. The reason why heated high-flow nasal cannula, or for people who don't use that verbiage in other facilities, high-flow nasal cannula, the perk behind it is that you're shoving oxygen instead of 5 liters per minute through a nasal cannula at like 60 liters a minute. So the pressure is so high that like if you're a mouth breather, it's going to minimize how much oxygen is leaving your mouth, uh, is leaving out through your mouth, and it'll actually provide some sort of positive pressure. So for the hypoxemic patient, it's a good thing. Um, How old was she? She was like 60. She was 60. That's yeah. not that terrible. It's not that great. You've just been taking care of COVID patients too long. That's not, good. <laughs> That's not good. So it's not good, right? And so it's not that great. It's also not that terrible, but <laughs> it, it, it did give her some oxygenation support and all that stuff. But what this patient probably could have benefited from the most is BiPAP. But she was puking. So you put an NG tube. <laughs> So you put an NG tube and you put BiPAP. And the reason I say that is because the way that BiPAP works is you set a rate and you set a high pressure and a low pressure. And essentially the machine is going to give you air until that high pressure's 
mixed, and then it stops giving you air until that low pressure is reached. So it's actually giving you, it's offloading your work of breathing even more. So I would argue that this patient did not need heated high flow nasal cannula, needed BiPAP, and if you're worried about puking, put an NG tube in. All right. <laughs> so let's say like, all right, this is not working. She's super, super sick. At what point you're like, okay, now, now I guess we'll have to intubate. Yeah. I know we know the risk. Yeah. We're going to mitigate them with a little bicarb. Sure. And we're going to hyper oxygen, so yep. hyperventilate. Yeah. Um, at what point we're like, now, now's the time. We got it. We got to tube them. So like if you are, if you're tiring out, like, so if you're cool, small respirations, oh, that was a dog. The, <laughs> um, your small respirations, you're going from a respiratory rate of from 40 now to like 20. Like you're doing that on your own. Ah, all right. Yeah. If you're frail, if you're old and I'm just so behind, um, I may consider it. Um, if you're just like, if you're just puking and you're completely uptown and you don't have a cough, you don't have a gag, like it's, I, I would. Airway protection. Uh, airway protection. Cause all that's going to end up in your lungs. Um, but you know, it has to be like, you really cannot protect your airway. Like most of these people still have a cough and a gag. If you have a cough and a gag, you're able to protect your airway. So, but sometimes people are so bad that they just can't. And that's when, that's when I would intubate. But in order to, so mitigate it with bicarb. Yeah. But like when I'm intubating these patients and I'm out on the floor and by myself, I have a defibrillator attached to them. I have pressers hanging. Um, I'm not going to use Atominate. I'm going to use an Atominate and Rock. I'm going to use ketamine to maintain your the ability to breathe. Um, I'm going to make sure that you have fluids running. Um, on a pressure bag. On a pressure bag with like another one primed up and ready to go when that one goes out. So this is some so like most intubations. I always get a little stressed with an intubation because the thought of you can someone can die if you don't get that airway quick enough and if you paralyze them and sedate them. And I have seen that it, it thank the Lord it hasn't happened. You knocked on the table. Oh no. <laughs> um, thank the Lord it hasn't happened to me. Um, but I have seen it happen to my colleagues where people have ended up brain dead because they were not able to get an airway. So, um, you know, my stranger tone's always a little high. This patient, my sphincter tone and my blood pressure is through the roof. And this is one where I want complete silence in the room and I need to focus and I need to have all hands on deck and I'm stressed. So what you're describing is not a rapid sequence intubation. This is an optimization situation. Yeah. Everything we yes. can possibly do to prevent yeah. worst case scenario. Yeah. We're getting that set up yes. before we intubate. And like the and so fluids for the low blood fluids, pressure fluids, fluids, bicarb, yep. other pH, like pressors primed, ready, ready to go. go. Yep. Like the crash uh, cart is popped and even, opened. And even ready. like have respiratory go and put this patient on BiPAP for a minute or two. And I'm just going to try to hyperventilate them as much as humanly possible to give me at least a little bit of room. Whatever I can do to optimize them, um, I'm doing. And this is definitely a high risk intubation situation. So if we know that we have to do this whole optimization stuff, then we don't want to wait till last minute to tube them. This is whenever we're like, okay, they're they're looking tired. Right, correct. Let's go ahead and get everything. So this is gonna take a couple minutes to get this optimized. Yes, it, but it shouldn't take it. So you should make sure that everything is in the room, but at the same time, you should be moving quickly, because quickly, calmly, and efficiently. You should not be. This isn't something where it's like, all right, well, let's give it a few more minutes. No, like we need this stuff now. But we don't need to be running and screaming. We don't, because all it does is it, is it brings chaos. And this is, 
you know, honestly, when it comes to rapid responses and when it comes to intubating and the timing of intubation, everyone, this is a hard thing to gauge. Like when is that sweet spot where you intubate them too soon or you intubate them too late? I have intubated patients too late. I have intubated patients too soon. Um, everyone has. And I think if you ask honestly different providers, like one attending will tell me patient needs to be intubated. Don't get bicarb. Uh, another uh, attending will say, no, like give them bicarb. You're going to knock out, you're going to knock out their respiratory drive. Another attending will say, well, maybe you could get away with it. It's so hard to gauge, but the principle behind it is that you don't want to do it too late and you want to optimize them as much as possible. Right. Ooh, I could talk for hours about oh, this. Oh, man. How many times have the providers say, let's wait and go to the ICU and intubate? And I'm like, yeah, I would feel better doing it now because I have to trek all the way across the hospital yeah. with this acidotic patient. Um, but again, that that is... That is the age-old question, and it's hard to foresee the future. It's, and it's hard. And, and it's easy to, you yeah, know, it's hard. Monday morning quarterback the the game that just yeah. Happened. And that's and you want me to tell you something that's uh that's probably the most one of the more important things that I really try to like echo in new grads and in nurses and I mean uh, even attendings um, whenever I talk to them is dude, we really shouldn't be criticizing each other. Um, there people do the best that they can. There's, listen, don't get me wrong, there's obvious knowledge gaps that are inexcusable, um, you know, and like things that are unsafe, but really, truly, the vast majority of times, people do the best that they can. You know, people are trained, people react under different situations differently, and, you know, we all have to give a little bit of grace to each other, and this is this is hard. Monday morning quarterback serves no one. <laughs> it doesn't. It's terrible. I agree. Yeah, so... To summarize that, to summarize. we will do what we can to mitigate the risk and yeah. debate when we yep. absolutely have to because that's that's what the patient needs. All right, Christian. So I think, I think <laughs> that sums everything up. This is probably my longest podcast today. I'm looking at the timer like, oh my gosh, this is so long. Um, but I kind of expected that, honestly, when I invited you to be on the show. So um, is, there, is there anything else that you want, say, a newer nurse to know or... Anyone who cares for DK patients, any other like pearls or tidbits or nuggets, you're like, I wish people knew this. I wish people knew that they're, go with your gut and don't be scared to annoy or question. Um, you know, uh, residents, attendings, uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, dude, question us. Like that's what we hear, we're, we're here to be questioned. Do it in a respectful manner, obviously, be professional and, you know, not in a rude way. But like, yeah, and a lot of the times, like these rapid responses, nurses have a gut feeling about something and they're like, they're scared and they don't want to, they don't want to tell us, they don't want to call the rapid, they don't want, you know, the primary team to call rapid. So that way, you know, critical care doesn't get involved, whatever. No, go with your gut and do what's best for your patient. You guys are talented, you're skilled. You're valued, and I think people are seeing that more and more. So in terms of DKA, when you think that someone is not doing well and it's like, man, I don't think we're doing the right thing, speak up, man. That's what I, I want to hear from more nurses. I want you guys to have use your voice. I use mine. <laughs> Christian, thank you so much. That is, no, this was, you're this echoing was fine. my heart 100%. Thank you. This, is, this was a blast. So I am so privileged to get to work alongside you and to have you as a resource to pick your brain. I'm really glad my listeners now will get to benefit from your, from your big brain oh, too. Man. So thank you so much for being, to be on the podcast. Big brain or big head? <laughs> Both. <laughs>
<laughs> no, All right, we thank you. Thank you so much. This is great. Absolutely. I appreciate the honor of being on here. So it's been fun. It's been fun. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponserm.com.